Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Thursday, November 2nd, 2017, I'm Nadia Caldwell. First, a news update with Tommy Durkin. Pierce College in the San Fernando Valley is finding itself at the center of national debate over free speech on college campuses. As Anthony Ciardelli reports, the controversy revolves around a student who is distributing the U.S. Constitution. Right before the election last fall, Pierce College student Kevin Shaw was handing out copies of the U.S. Constitution on the grounds of Pierce College. A college employee told him he needed to move to the campus free speech zone and that he needed a permit. The school's free speech zone is a small rectangle of sidewalk in the center of campus. Shaw sued the school, and now the Justice Department is supporting him. Federal officials say the free speech zones qualified as unconstitutional prior restraint. Marika Tuthill beck Kuhn is Kevin Shaw's lawyer. So colleges are, are allowed to put in place rules that, uh, that are, are targeted or specifically targeted at preventing, um, at, at preventing, for instance, disruption on campus, things that, that prevent the, the campus from, from, from functioning properly. Free speech zone of the kind that's at, at issue in our case is just an, an unreasonably broad restriction of speech. And now one of the school's donors, the Dennis Beaver Foundation, is holding its support saying the school is chilling free speech. Peer student Erez Al agrees. If someone wants to come speak, they have the right to come speak. So, I mean, if you don't want to come listen to them speak, don't go to the speech. But another student, Brian Corbita, says he thinks the restrictions are okay. Earlier, like, people walked around to do, like, sending out flyers and stuff that people didn't want to hear and all that kind of things. Uh, and people aren't really into that. The college did not respond to requests for comment. A motion on the case is scheduled for November 14th. For Annenberg Media, I'm Anthony Cerdelli. Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder Yasiel Puig was expecting to go home last night with some championship jewelry to add to his collection. Instead, the heavy hitter ends the night with less bling than he started with, after his home was burglarized at some point during the Dodgers' Game 7 loss to the Astros. TMZ reports that the robbers entered after breaking a window and left with close to half a million dollars worth of jewelry. Though the Los Angeles Police Department declined to comment on the case, the crime was reportedly caught on surveillance cameras. More men are coming forward with allegations of sexual misconduct against actor Kevin Spacey. Charlotte Scott reports. The new accusations come four days after Star Trek Discovery actor Anthony Rapp publicly released details of his encounter with Kevin Spacey nearly 32 years ago. Rapp says the actor made unwanted sexual advances toward him when he was 14. Now employees of the Old Vic Theatre in London accuse Spacey of sexual misconduct. Spacey was the artistic director of the Old Vic for 11 years. The employees also accused the theatre of turning a blind eye to allegations raised over the years. Additionally, actor Roberto Cavazos, filmmaker Tony Montana, and an anonymous third party all report similar accounts of misconduct and illicit behavior by Spacey. Spacey's publicist released a statement saying the actor is taking time to seek evaluation and treatment. For Annenberg Media, I'm Charlotte Scott. Tonight, temperatures will dip into the high 50s with a small chance of rain. Tomorrow we'll have a high of 68 with a mostly cloudy sky. As we head into the weekend, we'll continue to have cloudy skies with the possibility of rain and minimal sunlight until early next week.
USC Basketball has ranked in the top 10 in the AP preseason college basketball poll for the first time since 1974. The Trojans enter the 2017 season ranked ahead of perennial title contenders such as Louisville, Gonzaga, and UCLA. The number 10 ranked Trojans will begin the year with one of its most experienced and talented rosters in its history. Key players like Chemezi Metu, Benny Boatwright, and Elijah Stewart all decided to return. USC begins its new season on November 10th at the Galen Center against Cal State Fullerton. Today, the Athena Women's Entrepreneurship Summit was held at USC to celebrate women business leaders and their entrepreneurial journeys. Chantel Bucci reports on the hardships facing women entrepreneurs. Many female entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs gathered at the Town and Gown Building to network and share their journeys. Jessica Namoy, founder of a startup business called Pocket NDA, said it can be challenging for women in many perspectives when it comes to being in a leadership role. We have to dress differently, uh, and we have so many more like accessories and makeup and shoes and things that we have to think about for every meeting that we walk into. We have to deal with um, being too assertive or not assertive enough. We have to deal with being considered emotional which I don't think I know any men who've ever had that challenge. Susie Rayu, chairwoman of the Athena event, said women have not been treated as fairly in the past as men have in the entrepreneur world. It's been forever that men have had more access to resources, to capital, to network, to mentorship than women have. But Susie believes the future of women looks bright because of the increase of women in entrepreneurship and leadership roles. I think there is an incredible support base and a network of women watching out for other women and also men that are conscious and thoughtful. Susie says it is hard for women to network in their communities, but that is exactly what her intention was for this event, for women to network with other like-minded women. Athena, the goddess of wisdom, was a fitting name that was chosen for this event. For Annenberg Media, I'm Chantel Biusha. It's six minutes after the hour. I'm Tommy Durkin. Thanks, Tommy. Coming up on From Where We Are, find out how to say fight on in a multitude of languages. The number of people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes is the highest since World War II. More than 65 million people are living as refugees or as displaced persons inside their own countries. Often, they are forced to live in temporary camps. Governments and organizations such as the United Nations have teams of workers at the camps to help accommodate the displaced people. Serene Habashian sat down with a United Nations aid worker during his trip to Los Angeles to learn more about his experience running a refugee camp in Musil, Iraq. Being displaced and being a refugee, is a, it's a, it should be a temporary trauma. As a child, Hoviget Temezian was temporarily displaced from his home in Lebanon because of a civil war. And before him, his grandparents had to flee Armenia because of genocide. Now, he's the head of the United Nations refugee camp in Mosul, Iraq. I signed up in 2006. Um, started in Lebanon and then joined UNHCR's emergency team. UNHCR is short for the United Nations Human Rights Commission. And then ever since I've been going from one country to another. At 
the age of 35, Etienne Mezian has led 10 operations for the UNHCR. He has worked in camps in Jordan, the border of Mauritania and Mali, Tunisia on the border with Libya, the Democratic Republic of Congo, twice, and now he's in Iraq. You know, if I get a call and they ask me to go somewhere, I will pack up and leave. Home for me is where I live. Sometimes, the places he calls home aren't very comfortable. In Mauritania, it was in the desert, so we had a guest house and shared toilets and showers with people. Etienne Mezian spends his day at the camp where people's basic needs are food, water, and electricity. But he gets to go home at the end of his workday. Iraq, now I live in Erbil, which is a city. So I have my apartment and there is a sense of normalcy after work. So in the evening when I go home, it's a you know proper apartment. Etienne Mezian has been able to find a sense of normalcy in juggling the two worlds. He says that's something people living in the camps are also looking for. Well, everyone is, seeks a sense of normalcy. And I think the sense of normalcy is really in our heads. Um, and so you can find people in the camp who find a sense of normalcy. And people living in the nicest apartment who don't find a sense of normalcy. So I think it's a matter of perception more than anything else. The camps are the last resort for people who have been forced out of their homes. What displaced people want most, he says, is to return to their homes. You know, we should not be patronizing people who are living in camps. We know that it's a temporary condition. And that we, we hope that the conflict is over and then they can return. Etienne Mezian has formed friendships with some of the people living in the camps, even after they have left and started new lives. You're in touch with people who, you know, have, uh, were able to find better lives, you know. Etienne Mezian receives a lot of praise for what he does as a humanitarian worker. But he seems almost annoyed by the admiration. I don't see it as something more important. And I think we need to value uh, within our society, wherever we are, um, everyone who's contributing positively. Etienne Mezian will remain in Mosul for another two years. That is unless he is asked to go to a new camp in a different place, which he is always ready to do. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sarin Habesian. Republicans in the House unveiled their long-awaited proposal for tax reform. As Sarah McGrew reports, college students aren't going to be happy. President Trump gave the GOP tax reform plan a shout-out earlier today. We're working to give the American people a giant tax cut for Christmas. We are giving them a big, beautiful Christmas present in the form of a tremendous tax cut. It will be the biggest cut in the history of our country. It'll also be tax reform, and it'll create jobs. Republicans say the bill will give tax cuts to middle-class families and will also lower the corporate tax rate, which Republicans contend creates jobs and spurs the economy. But others see it as a tax cut for the wealthy. The people who get wins in this process are the wealthy people who are organized and you know paying the politicians to do their bidding. Professor McCaffrey at the USC Gold School of Law says the losers in this bill are single-parent households and students. Students go in the category of losers because you're not organized. You haven't raised a bunch of money to pay for inside-the-beltway lobbyists to protect your student loan interest deduction. This new proposal would eliminate the student loan interest deduction. Look at a, a little issue, a relatively little issue in the bigger scheme of things, like the deductibility of student loan interest. You think, well, at least I'll get a tax break because I'll be able to deduct the interest. 
it's already highly limited. If you make too much money, it gets phased out. It doesn't really benefit you that much anyway. The bill also eliminates the home mortgage interest deduction, lowers the cap for state and local tax deductions, and includes a modest increase in the child tax credit. They're trying to get a bunch of relatively small little things that they're getting rid of, hopefully quietly. So they're in that sort of bucket of relatively small things that they're doing um, is the student loan interest deduction. So by getting rid of that, by getting rid of a lot of other things, they're hoping to get more money to finance uh, their tax cuts for corporations, for wealthy people. According to McCaffrey, this newest tax proposal is part of a pattern which he says will increase the tax load for workers. They're, they're basically going step by step towards this kind of world in which workers and only workers pay tax and the rich who don't need government benefits uh, can live out their lives in luxury. The American Council on Education is concerned that the new tax reform proposal will discourage participation in post-secondary education. They say this proposal would increase the cost of attending college by more than $65 billion between 2018 and 2027. President Trump and Republican leaders are hoping to have the bill passed by Christmas, but Democrats and some Republicans are already lining up against the bill. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sarah McGrew. USC has an incredibly diverse group of students, and the languages spoken on campus are some of that you may have never heard of before. Tando Delomo finds out what some of these languages are and how they unify our student body. Hola. Assalamu alaikum. Ni hao. Ekulema. Buongiorno. Nearly a quarter of USC students come from outside of the United States. One can only imagine what languages are heard in the halls and walls of USC. I'm from the north of England um, and I speak, ironically, French and Italian. I come from Finland and I speak Finnish, Swedish, English and a little bit Spanish. Uh, I'm from Japan. I speak Japanese and English. The admissions office says USC students represent more than 115 countries and a multitude of languages. USC professor Julieta Shagbagova speaks five languages. She's an expert in comparative linguistics and believes that language can be used as a gateway to different cultures. I think that every new language on your list added to your knowledge culturally, historically, uh, traditionally. Although the campus is diverse, international students do tend to stick to their own. Dr. Shagbagova uses her classes to bring students together. Each new nationality ethnicity adds to the knowledge, to the culture of the group. USC may be diverse, and sure, that might mean there are a lot of differences. But one thing is for sure, in every language, Trojans always fight on. Jai-ho! Identity. With Annenberg Media, I'm Tando Zomo from South Africa. I'm Nuran Salahiyeh from Syria. I'm Laura Bizari from Saudi Arabia. And I'm Sarin Habashian from Armenia. Until November 5th, 
every section of downtown's Grand Park will be blanketed with colorful altars, prominently featuring skulls and other symbols of death. It's part of celebrations for Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Bradley Vermont spoke to a couple of park visitors about what the day means to them. Dia de los Muertos, you want to celebrate death. I know not a lot of people take it that way to celebrate the passing of someone, but it's just a reminder that, you know, they're not gone as long as you remember them in your hearts and minds. And the colors are just very vibrant. Also to represent that it's not something very sad. You remember them with happiness and love. My name is Sulema Ochoa and I am here, I live here in Los Angeles. My parents are from Jalisco and I think it's just great. I, we have this at home too, we make our altars every year. So that's why I think it's re really cool that downtown is bringing this. So we have a photograph of whoever has passed and we include um, drinks or food that was their favorite and basically their souls come and eat the, the food. Um, we have pan de muerto. Um, we also have sugar skulls, um, and my grandparents from my father's side, they both passed away. So what we do to honor them is the 2nd of November, we make their favorite food. My name is Naomi Gonzalez. I work in the auditor department. I am from Mexico, and I was there uh, when I until 10 years old. So this is an altar for the animals. Uh, the one next to it, is for the people that sell uh, food on the streets, you know, lotes and tamales and street vendors. It's really nice tradition, I think, that you celebrate the Day of the Dead. It's, 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 it's beautiful tradition. Today at Doheny Library, a panel will discuss the Japanese incarceration during World War II. Following the panel will be a workshop with artist, writer, and community community builder, Tracy Kato Kiriyama. She came to our studios earlier this afternoon to talk about her work. I'm Tracy Kato Kiriyama, and I'm an artist and community organizer, and I work with different organizations, including Tuesday Night Project, Vigilant Love, and Nikkei Progressives. So what really is your main focus? I have a few focuses. One is to create art that make sense to all of my efforts in the community. So bringing more of myself to the creative space. And what I mean by that is engaging in writing poetry, writing for theater, creating shows that are reflective of the things that I'm thinking about now. So one thing I'm working on in an ensemble I'm with, Pull Project Ensemble, is a show called Tales of Clamor. And we are using the 1981 commission hearings that led to redress for Japanese Americans as sort of a case study for our character's journey of trying to figure out a way or a formula even for how to get people to show up now. It's an analysis of, of noise and silence. You know, people did not testify about their experiences in the American concentration camps for 40 years after Pearl Harbor and EO 9066. And so we're trying to think about what does that sound like to compress and, and, and suppress and hold in your trauma for 40 years before yeah. releasing it publicly. Um, wow. So we're, you know, just kind of analyzing sound and noise and, and the, this particular case study and the uh, archival video footage of the hearings that are very powerful um, as we dive into this theater piece. So yeah. that's just an example of, of ways in which I'm trying to meld 
mm-hmm. you know, the things that I work on in the community with what I'm doing creatively as an artist. I love that. It's kind of its own intersection, bringing artistry to awareness in a way, almost even almost an advocacy, mm-hmm. you know, for those voices that weren't heard at yeah. the same time. You yeah. Know? How how do we community build and bridge across boundaries mm-hmm. within the societal climate, right? But then mm-hmm. still using something that we love. Right? Mm-hmm. How would you suggest we do that? Maybe focusing on particular uh, communities and issues, depending mm-hmm. on how we're organized. Yeah. So somebody from one organization might necessarily need to focus internationally on human trafficking issues, right? Because mm-hmm. those involve, that's a global, that's a global issue. Yeah. So you can't necessarily work on just one country of focus mm-hmm. if you're going to be working on human trafficking. Exactly. Right? Um, I think that, say, in terms of, say, Vigilant Love, our focus definitely is on Los Angeles, Orange County, Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are very aware of who our great partners are across this country. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure as we grow older as an organization ourselves, we will start to um, reach out to and be reached out to by groups from yeah. other countries. So, And the great thing, right, in this day and age yeah. of technology, we don't need to um, consider... Uh, one city that is three hours away over another city that's 14 hours away. So, exactly. right. I mean, exactly. we can have these conversations. That's, that's an awesome thing. We can have these conversations and help each other now. Yeah. I know a lot of us are really worried about repeating the past. Yeah. Um, and so do you feel though, as this community building, this relationship building, this one-on-one, this getting to know people mm-hmm. would have changed the outcome of events like this, mm. if we knew what we knew now about engaging with one another, one another and getting to know people mm-hmm. for who they are, do you think it would have changed? I think that, so in looking at Japanese-American incarceration, mm-hmm. right, nobody stepped up Mm-mm. to say that was wrong. Even the ACLU turned their backs mm-hmm. on the Japanese-American community. Mm-hmm. Only the Quakers came out to help to be teachers in the camps, to make friends, to make visits, right? Mm. And uh, people were truly disconnected. And then 40 years later on the road to redress, well, 30 years later on the road to redress, that couldn't have been one without the voices of other communities mm. bolstering yeah. the second, first, third generations of folks who were in the camps themselves. Uh, we so solidly understand that we will do whatever we need to do, anything that we need to do to make sure that that does not happen again. For more with Tracy, you can see her tonight at the When We Imprisoned Our Own Lessons for Today from the Japanese American Incarceration event in Doheny Memorial Library at 5 p.m. On this week's Hear from Heritage, Jody Storm Sullivan sits down with Victoria Garrick, a junior libero on the USC women's volleyball team. After four straight road matches, what's your team kind of looking forward to now that you have four straight at home? Um, we just are looking to get back our home record. We were undefeated until we lost to Stanford. So this weekend we're looking to 
um, have great games versus both Arizonas. So talking about the Arizonas, your team split the matches when you guys went out there um, on the road a couple weeks ago. What's the prep like knowing that you have them at home, you have that home court advantage? What are you doing so that you can pull out two wins this weekend? We're very excited for the Arizona game because they swept us and we were completely caught off guard. I don't think we expected to lose the game, let alone get swept. So I know that they should be a little frightened because we're ready to get up for that match and really um, put the hammer on them. <laughs> All right, so you're a junior right now. As a freshman, you were playing and starting on a team that was the top team in the country. What's that transition or that growth and like, where do you see yourself from where you were as a freshman to where you're playing now and as a leader on the court? I think as a freshman, even though I was starting, I, it was still surreal to me. I, I would question, am I good enough to be doing this? You know, I can't believe I'm playing. Now I think I'm at peace with myself and my play, and I know I'm good enough to do this, um, to start on this team. And I think it's just really cool to look back and see how much I've developed as a player. In your development as a player, I have to say you're one of the more fun players to watch on the court. I go to a lot of y'all's matches. You have always such this high energy. What does that do for your own play, and then how do you see that affecting those around you? I try to talk as much as possible because the more I talk to my team, the less I talk to myself. So um, the more I can get the girls going and keep the energy high, the less I'm focusing on the little mistakes. Right, so switching gears a bit, I know that earlier this year you actually did a TED Talk about athletes and mental health. Um, obviously your own experiences influenced it, but what made you kind of sit there and think, hmm, I want to do a TED Talk? I remember when I first was experiencing um, depression and anxiety, I would Google athletes who are depressed because I just didn't know of any, I didn't hear of any. And Eventually, once I realized what I was going through, I thought there's probably some other girl or guy out there looking for a similar story and they can't find it. So I might as well put mine out there. And I think that was my goal. And when I saw that TEDx was coming to USC, I thought, why not apply and see if this is something they would be interested in? And they were. And it's had a really great um, result and some great feedback, which has uh, made me really excited. Have you seen your talk and being open and being very, putting this as an issue and being aware, uh, filling like a need for other athletes? Have people come up to you, reached out to you, maybe to give more talks at other places? Actually, this morning I received an email. I'll get this once a week. Someone will email me about the TED Talk and send me their entire life story and what they've been through. And um, I'm usually so busy, but I love to like lay in bed at night and read these stories of these people who are going through such similar instances. And it's just great to see that so many people are able to relate and resonate with my talk. And I think that it's just proven to me that the more honest and authentic I can be, the better reaction I'm getting from people. And it's encouraged me to continue talking about things I feel passionately. Has hearing other people's stories and the impact that you've had in their lives kind of helped you with your own process and dealing with all of this? It's, I think, rewarding to know that I've been through something and it's I've struggled and even sharing that that has happened to me has helped someone else. And so I think at the end of the day, that makes me the happiest. So also kind of on top of this, I know that you have your podcast called Skipping Practice. What made you want to start that? Well, I am a journalism major here. And because I'm so busy, I never have time to do much or get as involved as I'd like to. So I figured, what can I be doing on my own time? I can do a podcast. I can edit it myself, get my own microphone. I can do this completely on my own time. So. That's why I wanted to do it, but then I also felt that I could give a voice to more athletes who have more stories because I'm not the only one who has something to say. So I think by having this podcast, I can have on other professional and collegiate athletes and broadcast what they have to say about their failures, their struggles, and their successes. 
You've had some pretty interesting guests, one of them being Kelly Tennant, a USC volleyball alum. Um, what's it been like being on the interviewer side of a conversation? I love it. It's really fun. It reminds me how passionate I am about journalism, and that gives me something to look forward to when volleyball ends. So I love sitting down and switching gears and no longer being the athlete in the conversation, but being someone who can help someone else articulate their thoughts and feelings. So you mentioned, obviously, journalism post-volleyball, post-college. Where do you kind of see yourself going? Somewhere in journalism? Somewhere dealing with kind of your TED Talks? Where do you see yourself going? <sighs> That's a heavy question. I think that I am going to spend the rest of this year and next year really exploring all the things I'm passionate about and seeing what opportunities and doors those open for me and just follow that. You know what? Thank you so much, Victoria. I'm really excited uh, to get to see you play this weekend here at home. And if you guys want to watch her too, you can check Victoria and the rest of her teammates as they face Arizona State on Friday and Arizona on Sunday. That's it for From Where We Are Today. Today's show was produced by Norhan Mahmoon. We had a help today from Trevor Denton, Ava Macha, and Maya Teas. Chris Perfett is our board operator. The theme music was composed by Derek Renfro. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. I'm Nadia Caldwell. Thank you.